0: the fires of his heart for God were not burning very brightly. So he was speaking with a friend of his, and he shared with this friend of his that he uh, was just feeling quite spiritually dry. And this friend recommended that he uh, begin to research, begin to study, begin to explore the holiness of God. Colson responded to this with, dismissal, thinking, you know, why why do I need to look at the holiness of God? I need to learn more about the love of God or or the compassion of God, but why do I need the holiness of God? And so this friend recommended a teaching series by R.C. Sproul on the holiness of God, and Colson writes, all I knew about Sproul was that he was a theologian, so I wasn't enthusiastic. After all, I reasoned that theology was for people who had time to study, locked in ivory towers far away from the battlefield of human need, However, at my friend's urging, I finally agreed to watch Sproul's series. By the end of the sixth lecture, I was on my knees deep in prayer, in awe of God's absolute holiness. It was a life-changing experience, as I gained a completely new understanding of the holy God that I believe in and worship. My spiritual drought ended, but this taste for the majesty of God only made me thirst for more of him. Are you spiritually dry? Do you find that you could use something to light those flames in your heart? Well, maybe what you need is the holiness of God. Follow along as I read from Isaiah chapter six verses one through thirteen. Isaiah six one through thirteen reads. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? Is its stump. When we encounter God in His holiness, our only option is to respond with absolute humility before Him and with profound trust in Him. This morning, let's see first God's holiness in verses 1 through 3 as we begin to make our way through this passage. Look at how we enter into Isaiah's circumstances in verse 1. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, just pause right there for a moment. If you've been with us for these first five chapters of Isaiah, you've known that they served as like a, a, a spiritual prologue describing the spiritual condition of the audience to which Isaiah was speaking, the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And so there, were, there, was, there was great uh, warning and great exhortation to the people. But now, in chapter six, we begin to enter into real life, understanding context, understanding circumstances, understanding what exactly is going on with Isaiah's audience. And so, the people of Judah, their king of fifty-two years, Uzziah, has died. Isaiah, Isaiah or Uzziah, excuse me, I'm mixing up Uzziah and Isaiah. Uh, Uzziah died after 52 years, and he had a reign that was largely productive, largely good, but it ended kind of poorly. And he was actually a really good indicator of the spiritual health of the people of Judah overall. Largely good, but then the last decade plus decayed into spiritual rot. And so now the storm clouds of surrounding nations are starting to come around them, and there's an ominous, uh, fearful feeling besetting the people of Judah. So Uzziah is dead. And in that year, Isaiah writes, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I don't know how big the temple was that Isaiah was in. I imagine it was quite large, quite significant. And do you see how Isaiah writes there that the train of the robe of the Lord filled the temple? He didn't even get to see the Lord. He, saw, or he, he sees the Lord, but he sees the train of the robe is filling the temple. And so he's struck by just the majesty of God whom he is seeing. I remember, well, I don't remember, I wasn't there, but, but I've seen the news accounts of when Queen Elizabeth married Prince Philip uh, back, I think, n- November of 1947. And Queen Elizabeth, her, her, uh, the train of her wedding gown was like 18 feet 4 inches long. It was, it was just just regal, excuse me on that. And it was uh, just, just, just vast. And you, you see images from, from a royal wedding like that. And you, you are struck by just the, the, the pomp and the circumstances of all of it. And yet you also know that the royal wedding ends in just a matter of a few hours. The cathedral starts to empty out. The people are gone. Even the people that memories uh, bring to our mind or that, that newsreels show, many of whom are now gone. We are reminded when we are compared with the holiness of God, when we see it, we are reminded of the smallness of who we are. Queen Elizabeth, her train of her gown, 18 feet long, the train of God's robe fills the temple. And then as verse two says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. We don't really know what seraphim are. The word seraphim translates to a flaming being. This is the only place in all of the Bible where seraphim are mentioned imagine that they are these like flaming creatures that are flying around, uh, uh, circling around the throne room of God and around the glory of God's presence. And look at what they are saying. They are saying, they're calling to one another as verse 3 says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This repetition of holy, holy, holy. This is not repetition because they were hard of hearing. It is repetition describing the absolute otherness, the absolute separation of God from all created things. From human beings like you and I to even seraphim, created by God in His wonder and might. That interesting statement, holy, 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 it is the only place in Scripture where you see just just three adjectives to describe God described in repeated succession like this. You don't ever anywhere else in Scripture do you see love, love, love is the Lord God of hosts, or compassion, 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 or, or, or righteousness, righteousness, righteousness. No, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Ray Ortland writes of the holiness of God. It is simply His Godness in all of His attributes, works, and ways. Here He is, holy, holy, holy. It is not as if it's saying one plus one plus one. It is saying perfection times perfection times perfection. And it takes a unique linguistic contrivance to convey meaning beyond its meaning. As the seraphim strain at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He is not like us, but only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category. God is holy. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and you're familiar with the, the, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and uh, the little mouse, Reepicheep. Reepicheep gets in a little rickety boat and travels to the very end of the ocean. He gets to the very end of the world. where it just drops off in this land of fiction and make believe it is as if the word holy is the boat that takes us to the very farthest reaches of the language that we speak of human ability to communicate and it is there that the holy takes us to that vast reach and says i can take you no further John Piper describes the holiness of God or the language communicating this as if holiness carries us to the brink and from there on the experience of God is beyond words. In many ways, one of the great needs of the church today is to recover awareness of the holiness of God. And it's not just that we need to recover awareness of the holiness of God because it is who he is that is true. But like Isaiah, we need to see the holiness of God because of who we are. Listen to Isaiah in verse 4. Isaiah, upon seeing the seraphim crying out about the holiness of God, Isaiah writes, "...and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost." For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If We see God's holiness in verses 1 through 3. Now we begin to see Isaiah, and we see our own unworthiness in verses 4 through 8. Isaiah has gone from observer to participant in this great scene in the throne room of God. And he is undone by the fact that he and his people were not filled with worship extolling God. He and his people were not filled with worship uh, 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 pronouncing and proclaiming the, the majesty and greatness of their God. No, their worship was flippant and it was callous in its disregard of God. It was veiled in heartless, empty religiosity. Isaiah is realizing that God is not the distant grandparent that you go visit every once in a while and check to make sure he's okay. Isaiah is realizing that God is not the manager of the restaurant that you act to ask to speak with when service has been subpar or when your life is not going as you hoped. Isaiah is realizing the absolute holiness of God. You know what's incredible to me as we look at this? You know what's incredible? Do you remember last week? I'm I'm don't answer this, it'll be rhetorical, but you remember last week when we were in Isaiah chapter five and you saw six woes of God pronounced against uh the people of Judah. Woes upon them for their greed, for their self-indulgence, for their uh uh corruption, for their uh arrogance, for their uh um uh, uh moral relativism. And there's one more I can't remember, but you you remember there's six woes that are pronounced. And I think that there's a connection here between Isaiah 5 and now Isaiah 6. Because what you see here now in Isaiah 6, after these six woes of Isaiah 5, what does Isaiah say whenever we read verse 5 after he has seen God in his holiness? He has pronounced rightly woes upon Jerusalem and Judah for their this, 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 this. And. and then Isaiah, not just being a mouthpiece for God, but now reflecting upon God himself. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 5. He says, woe is me for I am lost. What we see here is that the holiness of God does not become the weapon whereby we we wield the sword against the wrongs that we see with everyone around us. The holiness of God becomes the means by which we are cut to the heart by our total lack of holiness, our spiritual rot, our spiritual decay as the people of Judah were realizing in the year that King Uzziah died. And do you know why we need this? Why do we need the holiness of God? Why do we need a holy God today? What is the power and the importance of this for us today? I think the the power and the importance of the holiness of God for us today, one of the most compelling reasons of, 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 of a vast scope, right? One of the most compelling reasons is because we live in a day and a time where We can start to believe that spiritually the greatest things we need revolve right around ourselves. I read a fascinating uh, opinion piece in the New York Times just a week or two ago. It was describing, it was written by a woman who I think is like a year older than me. She's in my generation, a millennial. And, um, She was writing about how she had uh, walked away from organized religion in her life, and she had given herself over the past number of years to what she believed to be the most important causes that she could orient her life around. So forms of political activism, forms of social activism, uh, but then also focus upon her own well-being, her own uh, self-care was the way she described it. But then she found that over the course of these years, she titled this article, The, uh, uh, what she titled, let, let me read it here, The Empty Religions of Instagram. So what she found was that, that um, these these ideas of 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 how we can care for ourselves with feel good slogans and things to supposedly make us pat ourselves on the back and know that i'm not okay you're not okay it's okay to not be okay all of these things they might make us feel good but they don't grab hold of the deepest reaches of our hearts and so what she found is that what she found is that she she said that th- this this self-help view of spirituality, it failed to answer questions for me about why are we here? Why do people suffer? What should we believe, on beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? The lie of our world in our day is that our greatest needs are met inside of us. But Isaiah holds before us that our greatest need is to behold the Lord God in the fullness of his holiness. This reorients how we understand ourselves. It reorients how we understand our world. As A.W. Tozer said, I don't fully agree with this, but the spirit of it, the, the argument of it is right on, where he says what comes into our minds when we think about God is actually the most important thing about us. Once we are in the throne room of God, it is then that we can begin to understand ourselves and how we relate to our world around us. So we see our unworthiness before this holy God. You want to see something else that's fascinating about this passage of Scripture? If you look up at verse 1, look at this. In verse 1, Isaiah writes, The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And then, But you then look down in verse 3, and it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and the whole word Lord is capitalized, Lord of hosts. And then the same at the end of verse 5, the whole word Lord for Lord of hosts is capitalized. I saw the king, the Lord of hosts. Well, is this a typo? No. Let me share with you what's what's happening here. You might be familiar with, in our Bibles, you see the word Lord or God uh, uh, spelled and addressed in, in, a, in a number of different ways. Well, what we see is that Lord in verse 1 Uh, uh, describes like the Lord who is the God over all of creation, just the the vast and out there, the God who rules over all things, Adonai. But then Lord, when it's all capitalized, is the name of the God of Israel or Yahweh. So Isaiah is revealing, I saw God himself and in the majesty of his holiness, I saw the Lord God of Israel who is this God and he is the one who reigns over all of his people in perfect holiness. And then look at verse five where this is, this is incredible. What, how does Isaiah describe him at the end of verse 5? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's what is happening to Isaiah. If you look back at verse 1, Isaiah says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. But now in beholding the holiness of God in his throne room, Isaiah now says with his mind and his heart reoriented outside of the kings and the rulers of this world to the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, who is holy. He says in verse 5, I dwell in the midst of people unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The King, as Isaiah seen, has seen it, has gone from King Uzziah to the King, the Lord God of hosts, and all because he has seen his holiness you want your world turned upside down as you understand yourself and you understand the world and you understand your life and, and, and you seek for bearing in how to approach life's hardships? The key is not to get a smaller view of God as if he is unable or un, incapable of addressing the problems that you see in this life. The key is a greater view of God. God who in his holiness rules over all things. And before whom we would say, if we entered in before his throne room, woe is me. That is the only God that is big enough to address. Only God that is sufficient to respond to the problems in our world as we see it. Read on in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now this is interesting. One of the seraphim now flies away from surrounding the throne of God and he has a live coal and he touches Isaiah's mouth with it. He cleanses his mouth with it and says, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. The altar was a place where sacrifice for sins would be made. And so in taking a live coal, a burning coal, signifying life from that altar, he goes and imparts this this righteousness, this cleansing, atoning mercy of God upon the lips of Isaiah. Isaiah. My friend, this is what we hope in as Christians. We can approach, we can come before God in His holiness only by virtue of the atonement that we have received received through a sacrifice on the altar for our sins. And by grace, that sacrifice is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who we'll see a little further later in this passage. But just ask the question, file it away, and then we'll move on. How would you approach God in His holiness? Would you need that atoning sacrifice in your place? Or would you, like I have on a number of occasions in my life, want to walk into the throne room of God and give Him a piece of my mind? But Isaiah shows us we don't walk into the throne room of God and give Him a piece of our mind. We walk in and we are undone by His holiness. So in Isaiah, we see the symbolism of a sacrifice being the means whereby another one is cleansed of sin. Atonement forces us to acknowledge our need for it. We often talk of the cross, but how often do we lose sight of the necessity of the cross? Not only in the means by which our sins are atoned for, but in the means by which we live and walk forward in the Christian faith, growing in obedience to God by reflecting upon and casting our sins that we have committed upon Christ and his death on the cross. So Isaiah 6 meets us with the holiness of God. It meets us with a right understanding of the necessity of atonement and how it must be provided for us by God outside of our capabilities and divinely imparted to us. But it also meets us with a with an understanding that we must have about worship. Isaiah 6 shows us that worship is not some trite meaningless ritual that we go through, habit that we partake in. Isaiah 6 shows us that we are we are ascribing to God all that is due to his name. All of the praise and adoration that is due to His name. We are ascribing it to Him. And so where our words are, travel that boat to the end of the shore or, or to the end of the ocean and we have nowhere else to go, our worship as the people of God, it must, it, it, it must try to, to reach those heights. Where we sing praises to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May our worship reflect wonderfully upon the character and the nature of our God. It can reflect joyfully upon the character and nature of our God. But as we sing and as we praise God, may we be careful to praise God in His holiness and for who He is and not give in to worship that talks about so much of who we are. But may we ascribe to God the holiness of who He is. Now look at verse 8 and following. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? After, here, after being cleansed, the Lord says, who's going to go? Who's going to proclaim this message? Now, the us in here is interesting because the us, the scriptures indicate from the book of Acts as well as from John, that this us is, is meaning the triune God. It's alluding to both Jesus and it's alluding to the Holy Spirit in Acts. And so it's like the triune God is having a conversation. Who's going to go? Who's going to proclaim this message? And then Isaiah in verse 8 says, here am I, send me. It's incredible. Isaiah, who particularly felt undone in verse 5, he's cleansed by the atoning mercy of God. And now in verse 8, he says, send me. It's a good understanding for if you're going to serve the Lord in ministry or in missions or even in making His gospel known to those around you for all of us as Christians we recognize our utter undoneness our utter depravity before God but then by his grace our sins are atoned for by his mercy we are redeemed and then as ones who have been healed and want the sick to find the healing that we have we cry out oh God here I here am I send me Now wouldn't what would the message you think God would send Isaiah with? What do you think it might would be after this encounter in, before the throne of God? Don't you think it'd be something just wonderful? Don't you think it'd be something just almost almost unimaginably beautiful? Well, that's not what we see. Look at verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is telling Isaiah that He's going to send him out as a tool by which God will harden the hearts of His audience. That is not what you would expect, is it? Now there's a mystery here that we are going to unlock as we conclude our sermon and how the hardening of hearts in accord with God's holiness works ultimately for our redemptive good in some ways, but there's a principle I want us to grasp. Listening to the preaching of God's Word. Everyone clue in with me on this. Listening to the preaching of God's Word week by week, Sunday by Sunday, verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter, it will do one of two things. It will either harden your heart in continued callousness towards God. Perhaps you say that you worship Him and yet you have no regard for His holiness and no understanding of your need for His atoning grace. Or, if it doesn't harden your heart, it might be the means by which He softens your heart and by which He draws you to Himself. It's incredible that there might be two people sitting in a pew, even this morning, two people that even share a home. And one of them, in the preaching of God's Word, their heart can be hardened, and in another, the preaching of God's Word, their heart can be softened. Now, don't take my word for this. Take Jesus' words for it. I don't know this specifically, but Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, might actually be the most quoted verses from the book of Isaiah in all of the New Testament. They're quoted at least five times in the Gospels. And in those five times, they're repeatedly quoted as people rejected Jesus and his message. People would reject Jesus and he would basically say, well, they're fulfilling Isaiah 6. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Their hearts are dull. Their eyes are blind. They cannot behold me. And yet, in in, in the New Testament where Jesus would encounter people and those who would come to Him, they would come to Him for insight into His Word. They would hear it. Their hearts would be softened. And they would say, I want to know this God. And it was them whom he He would bring to life through Him. This is a strange message for the Lord to commission Isaiah to preach. But it is a certain warning for us. Beware if our hearts feel bored by God's Word. Beware if our hearts feel unmoved by God's Word. Think about it. What does the condition of your heart have to be spiritually if you are not turned upside down by the holiness of God that we have seen here? So in Verses 9 through 13, we see the holiness of God in his plan of redemption. And listen to Isaiah ask the question that you or I might ask if we were commissioned out with this message. Isaiah says in verse 11, 11, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah asks, how long am I going to be preaching this message, God? And God says, until my sweeping wrath has come through to the point that cities lie waste without inhabitant, the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord exiles people far away. But then see the last note by which we grab hold of and we hang on to for hope. The Lord says in verse 13, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And then listen, the holy seed is its stump. God promises what we're what we are seeing already and what we will continue to see throughout Isaiah, this strange providential grace for a seed, for a remnant of the people of God, whom He will preserve, whom He will protect, whom He will maintain, whom He will grow out of the carnage that has come upon the city of Jerusalem and the vineyard of God's people. In this holy seed, if we fast forward into the New Testament, And we remember this warning of Jesus saying to His audience, If you do not hear, you are the ones who your hearts are hardened, your eyes are blinded, your ears are deafened. If we fast forward to one of those occasions in John chapter 12, the Lord Jesus is telling a story, and then he recounts this purpose. But then John, the author of this gospel, in referencing this allusion to Isaiah 6, this is mind-blowing, everybody. Lock in on this. John, in referencing this, he says, he describes, they denied the glory of him whom they saw in Isaiah 6. And the hymn there is Jesus himself. So if we look back in Isaiah 6 and we enter the throne room of God, the one who is sitting on the throne is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so what we see as we enter into Jesus' life and his ministry, as John reveals for us, is that Jesus is the one whom his people have denied. But then we step back and say, hold on, I need atonement. I need that live coal to come before me. How do I enter the throne room of God? The wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus has come to us. And He has been made to be our atonement for our sin. The one who sits on the throne in Isaiah 6 is the one who went to the cross in your place and in mine. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And if we will plant ourselves under the cross, allowing ourselves to never move away from that holiness of God that was exhibited in the death of the Son of God for our sins. And if we will plant ourselves under that cross, allowing ourselves to never ignore or never neglect the atonement that we desperately need by the act of God and see that it was accomplished by this One who was sitting upon His throne, then we will see the wonder of the Gospel in that it beckons us in to see God holy, holy, holy And it beckons us to look to Christ. Who just as our words go to the end of the farthest reaches of the ocean and we can go no further to describe Him. He has come all the way to us. That we may behold Him and not be struck down in our unholiness. But may live through His death in our place. Brothers and sisters, this is the holy seed. The ones who hope in the holy Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, You are holy. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns triumphant. And it is through His atonement in our place that we can sing of Your holiness and we can rejoice in it and live by it. It is in Christ's name that we pray. And it is through Christ that we hope. If there's any in here, Lord, who do not know You through Christ, would You cause them to be struck and moved by the holiness of God? And turn their hearts towards the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray this in His name. Amen.